Well, good morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Appreciate last week, uh, Joe filling in. I got the opportunity last week to preach at the church I grew up in. I uh, spent the majority of my childhood, teenage years, and college years there at that church, and so it was really good uh, to go back and to see them, see many familiar faces, and talk about Jesus. And I was just reminded, and I say this so much, and if you follow me on social media, you probably blocked me because I say this so much at this point, um, but just to share the story of Living Hope Columbus at other churches um, and to, to share what God is doing here and what he's allowed us to be a part of. And I just use that phrase over and over, that we're living in the middle of a miracle, And I got to share that last week and to hear from so many people that I respect, people that have prayed for us uh, for many years. Ten years before this church even was started, people were praying for this church. And uh, to hear them just encourage us and to say, hey, we see online and through the emails what the Lord is doing at Living Hope Columbus. And it's just, it's special. And what God is doing is special. And so, uh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being on this journey with us. And what God is doing here is unique. And I know sometimes when you're living in the middle of something, you don't realize that you are. It's that old phrase of, uh, I wish I knew I was in the good days before I left them. Um, We're in the good days right now. And so make sure in the midst of all of this COVID and masks, and, and I know it's not the most ideal of situations, to pause occasionally, look around, and just say, thank you, Jesus. We get to do this, and this is so exciting. So uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're starting our Christmas series this morning. This next three weeks will be in the series that we're calling Twas the Night Before Christmas. I'm incredibly excited about this. It's my favorite time of the year, and uh, you know that. And if you didn't know, um, I do have the only stock of chocolate Little Debbie Christmas tree cakes this side of uh, 70, so north side of 70. So if you need some, too bad, they're mine. Uh, but you can watch me eat them, all right? I have I've literally, I think, 13 boxes at my house right now, and they will be gone by the 25th of this month. So uh, it is what it is. Genesis chapter 3, stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. God's Word says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and, any more, and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for this day, for this morning, this gathering of the local church. God, I pray now as we look at what are maybe familiar verses, that Lord, you give us fresh eyes on this passage of scripture today. That, Father, you show us Jesus in your word today. God, as we move towards Christmas over these coming weeks, that we would remember Jesus and remember the incarnation of Christ for our sake. God, would you give us the ears we need to hear from you this morning? Hearts, Lord, soft hearts to hear a word from heaven. And God, would you give us the hands and feet and the courage, bravery, and boldness to pursue Christ this week wherever you send us as missionaries. Move in this place today, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this is going to come as a shock to you this morning, and I told my wife this last night, and she said, you can't say that. Uh, This is going to come as a shock to you. I don't like Christmas. Now, many of you right now, if you know me, you've been around our church for at least one week, you're probably thinking in your head, you liar. But I actually personally, and people think this is kind of crazy, but I do not like Christmas at all. What I do like is the anticipation associated with, with Christmas and Jesus. That's important too. But I like the anticipation that's associated with the Christmas season. 
For me, the good stuff surrounding Christmas is the events going up to it, going to see the Christmas lights, the drive-through displays, family getting together, Christmas Eve services, watching Christmas movies, the activities associated with the season. For me, that's the good stuff. But the ultimate culmination of Christmas, the Christmas season for me, is Christmas Eve. That's like the culmination of anticipation for Christmas. And I, have, I was thinking this week as we were thinking this idea of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Uh, I loved, one of my favorite memories was going to Christmas Eve service as a child. And then we would always come home and we'd have friends over for dinner to eat all these different appetizers. Just people would come and hang out. So I'm excited this year. We get to do our first ever Christmas Eve service as a church. We've never been able to do one before. So for me, it brings back all of these nostalgic memories. I have fond memories of sleeping next to the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. And then Liz told me I got too old for that, so she made me stop doing it. But uh, I'm kidding. But I used to do that as a child. I'd put out my sleeping bag, and I'd sleep right next to the tree just so I could wait on Santa Claus. Now that I've been married now for several years, my wife and I often, we wrap Christmas presents for our girls on Christmas Eve, and we watch a Christmas movie together. I love everything, the anticipation associated with the Christmas season. And what I want us to do today, and specifically from Genesis 3, is I want us to focus on the anticipation. These next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these anticipation stories of Christmas throughout the Scriptures. For us to really look at these passages of Scripture where Jesus was predicted long before He ever came to earth. Christmas Day was predicted several thousand years before it came to pass. But it was predicted over and over throughout the Old Testament. And I want us to really just sit in that anticipation. I want us to see these little glimmers of the gospel, these glimmers of hope that God is going to redeem the world. And when Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to earth as a baby, God fulfilled a promise. And so I want us to look at this first prediction of Christmas. Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar with this story, There's a lot that has transpired up to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Let me catch us up on what's going on here before. Genesis 1-1, we see that famous phrase, in the beginning, God. God, infinitely existing in eternity past. God was not created. God has always existed because he is, is God. He exists outside of space. He exists outside of time. He exists outside of all matter. God is infinite. But in his sovereign plan, what does God do? It says, in the beginning, God created. God created what we know as the galaxies, the heavens and the earth. Over a six-day period, God creates time, space, and matter. He creates animals. He creates living things. He creates planets, insects, all from nothing. Think about that. God spoke and things were. They just existed. That's how powerful our God is. Then on day 6, Genesis 1.26 tells us that the culmination of God's creative process was creating mankind for one purpose, for His glory. That's why God created. God was not lonely. Did you know that? God existed in the perfect trinity in and of Himself, in perfect relationship with Himself. He lacked nothing. God doesn't need us at all. But He created us for His glory, to be vessels of His glory for God's worship. So what does God do on day six? He takes a pile of dust, the Bible says, and he takes that pile of dust and he breathes life into it. Thus man is formed. Never forget that, that in comparison to God, we are simply dust. That's a good posture for us to keep as followers of Jesus. So that first human being, that first man was named Adam. 
The Bible says he wasn't created to be alone, so God puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib from Adam's side, and then he takes that rib and forms Eve, the first woman. Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that if you take your right hand, and men, and you feel right here in your rib, that there's actually going to be one less rib on your right side than there is your left side? Only one of you did it. I'm totally making that up. That's not true. All right. God took a rib and he creates this woman. And then what does God do? Genesis 1 says that God takes this man, he formed this woman. He brings them together. The Bible says that in the covenant of marriage. One man and one woman. They then live in sinless perfection in a place known as the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, 22. And they had the perfect life. Here's what they did. They worked the ground, they loved each other, and they walked with the Lord. That's incredible. That's what we're called to do. They worked the ground, they loved each other, and they just walked with the Lord. That's what Adam and Eve did. Yet, the Bible says that sometime before that, we don't know when, potentially on day one of creation, that God had created a multitude of beings known as the angels. These beings, again, were created for one purpose, serve God, worship God. God didn't need them, but he chose to create them for his glory. Ezekiel 14, verse 28, says that among those angels, there was one that was a cherub. Not talking about the baby wearing a diaper, floating on a cloud kind of a cherub. Cherubs were pretty bad dudes, pretty bad-looking angels. But among the cherubs, there was one that was of the highest-ranking order. The Bible says in Ezekiel 14, 28, he was known as the anointed guardian cherub. It means he had the largest wingspan of any other cherub, and he was tasked with one purpose. He stood in front of the throne of God and projected God's glory to all creation. He was a worship leader in heaven. That was his role. His name was Satan. In his position as worship leader, the Bible says in Ezekiel 14 and also Isaiah 28 that pride crept in Satan's heart. You can read in uh, Isaiah 14 the I will statements of Satan. I will ascend to the position of the Most High. I will, I will. Pride crept into his heart, and he demanded to take over rulership from God of the universe. So what does God do? God kicks him out of heaven, casts him down to the earth. Revelation talks about that. Satan takes one-third of the angels with him, and now he has one purpose. He wants to destroy God's glory by destroying God's image bearers. That's us. He seeks to roam around the earth and deceive and destroy. That's the role of Satan. So we see Satan. What does he do here in Genesis 3? He embodies himself as a snake. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. And he convinces Adam and Eve to question God's word, undermine God's authority. If you remember in Genesis 2 and chapter 3 as well, God gave Adam and Eve one rule. He said, enjoy the garden. Don't touch that tree. Leave it alone. Not don't touch. Don't eat from that tree. Enjoy the whole garden. But that one tree, don't eat from it. That was the only rule. Love and enjoy God forever. That was what they were tasked with. But Satan gets them to question the validity of God's word. Hey, a little side note. Joe and I talk about this often. Did you know every sin you and I could ever commit starts with questioning the word of God? You see, Satan gets Adam and Eve to ask one question. Did God really say that? You know, every sin that is running rampant in our culture right now starts with a questioning of God's word. Did God really mean that? Did God really say that? Does God really know what's best? Does God really understand me? Did God really say? You can trace every sin back to that one question. That for us as followers of Jesus, it helps us understand that the devil's not that creative. That every sin he's going to tempt us with, he follows the same playbook every time. Question the authority of God's word. 
If you and I would simply love, enjoy, and obey the word of God, my goodness, life would be so much simpler. That was free. But in a moment, what we see is he gets Adam and Eve to question God's word, question the premise of God's word. Did he really say that? And because they did, they took of the fruit. It says Eve took and Adam was with her. Sin entered the world. What happens as a result? Humanity's relationship with God is fractured. Therefore, we need a savior to restore it. We see in this passage in Genesis 3, right before our passage today, that God enters the Garden of Eden after this event took place. It says he's walking in the cool evening breeze. If you remember the story, he calls for Adam. Note that. He didn't call for Eve. He called for Adam. Why? Because men are supposed to lead in the family. Side note, that was free too. Guys, we have to lead. We have to lead our wives. We have to lead our children. We're supposed to be leading in culture. Men are called to be leaders. But because Adam didn't, sin entered the world. That's so important. So when God steps into the garden again to find Adam and Eve, he calls out for him. Adam, where are you? Bible says Adam and Eve were hiding from God because they felt shame over their nakedness. And what comes next is a series of judgments and curses from God against all parties involved. God pronounces a curse over Satan and the serpent, and he also pronounces a curse over Adam and Eve. Again, side note on this one too. Sin will always get punished by God. Why? Because he's righteous. God always has to punish sin. It has to be dealt with. So look at me at verse 14 again. And I want to show us, how does Genesis 3, 15 and 14 tie back to Christmas? You're probably thinking, where are the angels? Where's baby Jesus in a manger? Where's all this stuff? Follow me here. First off, let's see the curse on the snake. Look at verse 14 again. So the Lord God said to the serpent or to the snake, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. You're cursed more than any wild animal. And you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse here, but there's a little bit of mystery surrounding it, too. Look at what God says to the snake. First, because you have done this. We don't know the intricacies surrounding how Satan embodied this snake. The Bible is not clear on it. But in some way, shape, or form, Satan was able to embody this form and figure of a serpent. Some Bible commentators would compare this to the event in Mark chapter 8. Do you remember the man who was possessed by the legion of demons? And Jesus cast those demons out where? Into the pigs. So we know biblically that there's some way it's possible for demonic beings to embody animals in in some way. Some would say that's what's going on here. So look what, what Jesus goes on to say, where God goes on to say, because you have done this, you are cursed. Not only cursed, but you're cursed more than any livestock and any other animal. Again, think about this. There is only one animal on the face of the earth that is under the curse of God right now. It's the snake. No other animal existing on earth is under a curse, but this is a very specific curse that was addressed to a specific animal because of its involvement in the fall of man. God curses the snake. Every other animal feels the effects of sin just like we do. Sin not only affects you personally, but it also ripples around to those around you. So we see God curses the snake, but sin is also felt across all of creation. So what is his curse? Verse 14. He says, you're going to move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Now, for me, I'm a Bible nerd. I think this verse is cool. Because I think we can make kind of take some liberties here. And while the Bible isn't like totally specific with this, I think it's very possible that before Genesis 3.14, the snake had legs. Thought of that? It's very possible that in some way the snake had legs in which he scurried around on the earth. 
But because of what he did and his involvement in the fall of man, what happened? God removed him. And God says, now, because of what you've done, you will no longer be able to scurry on your legs. Instead, you're going to crawl in the dust of the earth. Why is that so significant? If you've ever seen a movie before where somebody approaches a king, what's the posture you always take in the presence of a king? Low. Always. Somebody, especially if they're in trouble in front of a king, you've probably seen those movies before, where they lay completely flat, face down on the ground. Why do they do that? It's a sign of submission. When somebody lays complete, you may have, I've seen people pray before, when they're praying to God, and they literally lay down on their face. Why do they do that? Because they're showing that they're fully submitting themselves to this, this higher being, this higher person than they are. So by God taking the snake and making him crawl in the dust, what's God doing? He's pronouncing a judgment and a curse of submission on him. Remember, this isn't just a curse upon, upon the snake. It's a curse upon Satan, too. Satan was involved in all of this. So God forces them into a posture of submission. He says, Satan, you wanted to ascend to my throne in heaven. You wanted to take over my place. Now watch what I'm going to do. You're going to be in the dust. Force submission in my presence. Look at the next part. So not only will he crawl on his belly, but he's going to eat dust all the days of his life. What does that mean? Now, you can go online and research this, and some people are going to say, when a snake sticks out, sticks out its tongue, it actually like licks up dust and takes it back into the brain and all this crazy... Stop it. That's not what that means. It's a sign of humiliation. Okay? Crawling in the dust was submission. Eating dust is humiliation. Uh, Micah, chapter 7, it'll be on our screen. 16 and 17, look what this says. So the nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. And then look at this part. They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. Why will they tremble? They will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God, and they will stand in awe of you. So when the prophet Micah, thousands of years, before, or thousands of years after this, is writing of God's coming judgment on the nations, he writes this phrase, he says, these nations that believed that they were so powerful, what will happen when they come into God's presence eventually? They'll lick the dust of the earth because they're in the presence of God. They will be humiliated because they thought they were powerful, but in comparison to the God of the universe, to Yahweh, their power does not compare. Therefore, they will lick the dust of the earth. You see, God is pronouncing a judgment of submission and a judgment of humiliation. Now, remember, this is not only a judgment upon the serpent. This is also a judgment upon Satan. And the snake is a permanent symbol of God's victory over the devil. When he wanted to ascend to the highest heavens, God kicked him out. Friends, we have to remember that Satan is a defeated foe. That no matter what he tries to do on this earth, he is a defeated foe. And he is in full submission to God, and he is fully humiliated in the presence of God. I heard one person one time say that the devil is a, a, a dog on God's leash. He can only go so far. He may bark a little bit, but eventually God can tug him back. Why? Because he submitted fully to God. Look at point number two. So we see God pronounce this curse on the devil and also this curse on the snake. But now we see hostility into the picture. Verse 15 says this. 
I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Friends, this verse should excite us like crazy, and hopefully it will in a moment. I read this this week, and I was in my office. I had to close my Bible and just take three laps around the church because I'd never noticed some of this stuff before. In Genesis 3, verse 6, we saw sin enter the world, Adam and Eve, and their interaction with the serpent. But now what we see in verse 15, this first part, is God is already starting to pull back the solution. You see, sin entered in verse 6, but by verse 14 and 15, we're seeing the Savior enter the picture. Notice first, God says that there's going to be hostility between Satan and the woman. That's Eve. Now, friends, this is what's so cool. This isn't only a curse of judgment. This is also prophetic right here. Watch this. This is, I'm, Pastor Joe, you might have to move some chairs, man. I'm about to get going. You see, first we see here in, in, in verse 15, you see this phrase, her offspring. Your Bible might actually say her seed. That's important. Don't miss that. Sometimes we're just going to read that and we're going to skip right over it. So that's referring, we know, to a descendant of Eve, right? All of us have descended from Adam and Eve. They're your great, 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 20 times grandparents, all right? We've all descended. So there's going to be an offspring from Eve, her seed, her offspring. Here's what's crazy to me. That phrase, her offspring and her seed, this is the only time it's found in the Bible. I didn't know that. Why is that so important for us? Because traditionally... In the Bible, when you see somebody um, referencing their descendants or a prophetic statement about somebody's descendants that will be born, it says the offspring of the man or the seed of the man. What's this thing that God is showing us here with this one phrase? That there's going to be a descendant that rises from Eve that is not the seed of a man. This individual, this person that would be born is only a descendant of Eve. Meaning this individual that's going to be born is only from the bloodline of Eve, not from the bloodline of Adam. Did you know that when you were born that you come from the bloodline of both of your parents? Yet in redemptive history, there's been one person that was only born from the bloodline of a woman. Why does that matter? Romans 5 verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, in the same way death spread to all people. Did you know the sin natures passed through the male? That the reason that you have a sin nature is because it's passed down to you from your father. So Genesis 3.15 here, this first part, is a veiled prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus. That blew my mind this week. That God was already, just a few verses after the fall of man, saying Jesus will come and he will be different than anybody else that has been born because he's from the seed of a woman. That one phrase, friends, points us to Christmas Day. That darkness had shrouded the Garden of Eden. And God, even in this curse, pronounces a prophetic thing saying, but there's going to be a descendant that comes only from Eve, who will be born of a woman, and a woman only. Therefore, he doesn't have a sin nature. But he'll still be a human. Therefore, he can die on your behalf in order to pay the sin debt that you now owe me. And so God says there's going to be hostility because through the line of Eve, the Savior is going to be born. I've already taken care of it, God says. That blew my mind this week. Then God sheds more light on it. Look at point number three. He says the solution of a Savior. Verse 15, the second half says this. It says he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. 
So God starts to bring a little bit more clarity on sin's solution, giving some specifics on how this hostility is going to play out. Notice first, he says that Satan is going to strike the heel of the Savior. That's Jesus. What does that mean? It means the blow that Satan was going to inflict on Christ would be temporary. It would be painful, but it would be temporary. The Amplified Bible translates this verse this way. It says that you shall only, again, God's talking to Satan and the serpent, you shall only bruise his heel. Temporary blow, temporary pain. If you have kids, some of you in here do, and you've ever journeyed out from your bedroom in the middle of the night to get yourself a glass of water and if you're like my house, your kids don't, they just can't pick up their toys for some reason. And you get to the bottom of the steps, and we've all done this before. What do you step on that's like the most bone-crippling pain in all of the universe? Lego. You step on a Lego as a parent, and it's like, just chop my leg off, I'm done, Jesus. Like, I'm over this. You step on a Lego. And what do you do when you step on a Lego? You step on the Lego, you might start speaking in tongues or something, and then what do you have to do? you got to sit down for a minute, right? Because the Lego hurt. But what do you always do a couple minutes later? You get back up. See, that's this verse. That, that Satan may strike the heel of the devil. He may stub his toe a little bit. Jesus may step on a Lego and he's gonna, he might sit down for a minute, but he's going to get back up. That's the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. He's going to get back up. Look at the next part of this verse. Verse 15. It says that, look, look he will strike your head. Again, so, so we've got this idea of where God is pronouncing this curse on the serpent and upon Satan, and he tells them, all right, you're going to strike the heel of the Savior. That's fine. But the Savior is going to do something a little bit more. He's going to strike your head. Your Bible translation, I love this so much more, actually says that he will crush your head. The Amplified Bible puts it this way, that he will fatally bruise your head. You see, Satan's attack on Jesus would be temporary. We saw that on the cross. But the, the blow that Jesus would deliver to the forces of darkness would be permanent. If you live someplace where you have snakes around your, your yard a lot of times, you, you might have done this before where you chop off the head of a snake. I remember doing that when I was young. You take a shovel, two pieces. It's wonderful. Maybe you're one of those families where you just took the snake. I saw somebody do this once in Africa. They took the snake by the tail, they grabbed it, they slammed it on the ground so it was stunned, and then they stomped on its head. Here's the thing about that. Stomp on a snake's head, they're probably not going to get back up. They're dead. They've been completely destroyed. What is God reminding us? That, yeah, Satan may bite the heel of, the, uh, of Jesus, of the Savior, but ultimately Jesus is going to crush his head. Where do we see that? The resurrection. You see, through the resurrection, Jesus defeated death. Through the resurrection from the grave, Jesus defeated Satan. It's the reminder, as we said a few minutes ago, Satan is a defeated foe. He, he may inflict some pain on us right now, but he is a defeated enemy. He will be defeated. He is defeated. Uh, again, the only way I can think to describe this, when I got to go to Africa like eight years ago, one night they were serving us chicken, which chicken on these islands was a commodity. And what they would do with these, this is weird, what they would do with these chickens, be thankful for Kroger, all right? You just get to go to Kroger and you're like, I'll take these three. And you just check out and go home. It's wonderful. In Africa, what they did is this, this lady, her name was Mama, she would take the chicken with her kind of dull knife, hold the chicken down on this block. She would take her knife and go, Poof! and the head would fall off, just chopped it off. Then what would typically happen is they would take that chicken and they would set it back up. You know what a chicken does when you chop its head off? It runs. 
If you've never seen you think the chicken's possessed by a demon, it just starts taking off. And they, they just let it run for a few minutes until it eventually just keels over and dies. You see, friends, with the resurrection, Satan's head was chopped off. It was crushed. And the only way, and again, you know my illustrations, they're really weird, but you remember them. The only way I can think of the devil now is like a chicken with his head cut off. He is running around in this world causing chaos. And the only reason he is is just because he's running into things and running all over the place. He's just a, a crazy guy, just all over the place. But Revelation 21 tells us that someday Jesus will take the devil, the devil, he'll also take death, and what will he do with them? He will finally cast them into the lake of fire for all eternity, and we will love and enjoy God forever in perfect relationship with him. So let him run around, let him cause a little bit of chaos. He is a defeated foe, and we have to remember that this Christmas season. Romans 16 verse 20 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's talking about Revelation 21 when Paul wrote that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He is defeated and he will be defeated. If you're a Bible nerd, verse 15, I'm going to jack up this, how you say this, but it's the proto-evangelium of, of the Old Testament. Proto meaning first, evangelium meaning gospel. This is the first time in the entire Bible the gospel was preached, Genesis 3 verse 15, that God was going to send a savior into the world, that maybe sin had already come in, but God had a solution. And here's what I love about this, and the reason that we decided to go this route this Christmas season, is every Christmas we anticipate the angels. Hark the hail, angels sing. We anticipate Mary arriving in Bethlehem, and there's no room for her in the inn. We, we anticipate the pronouncement uh, uh, to Joseph. We, we anticipate the wise men. We anticipate all of the shepherds. Those are the things we anticipate at Christmas. But I want to help us this year see that Christmas is not bound to the beginning of the Gospels. But Christmas is in fact all over the Scriptures. That the birth of Jesus was all over the place. And if you just read the Old Testament, you see the anticipation of the coming Christmas. Genesis 3.15 was a verse that if the Jews had not had their eyes veiled, they could have looked back on and said, our Savior's coming. Christmas will be here soon. Christmas Day is on its way. That someday God's going to send that baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem, just like he told us about in Genesis 3. He's going to keep his promise. That's simply why we call this the night before Christmas. Because it's the anticipation through these various stories of a Christmas day that's going to be here soon. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thanks for this morning. Thank you for my friends, Lord. I thank you for everybody that calls Living Hope Columbus home. Jesus, I pray now that even in this simple two verses in Genesis, that, Father, that this helps us see Christmas in a fresh way. Knowing that Christmas spans beyond just those stories we read every year in the Gospels, Lord, may we never lose the wonder associated with those but God, may you take us to a, a new level in our relationship with you, Lord, when we begin to see Christmas scattered throughout the Bible, that you promised Christmas Day thousands of years before it ever came to pass. So God, I pray this week as we head out into our communities and into our, our workplaces and our schools, Lord, send us as evangelists, evangelists who are completely in love with the God of the universe, the Lord who redeemed our souls. He didn't have to but he chose to, and he invited us into a relationship with him. I pray now, God, as we sing, 
that it's a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven today. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>